1: It's
2: May 5th, 1215, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ollie. The
0: Retrospectors.
2: What do we want? More power. When do we want it? In five weeks' time after we've marched to the capital and forced King John to sign the Magna Carta, the rebel barons might have said. Today in history, in 1215, when ahead of forming the army that would force the English king to agree to something a bit more like democracy, they renounced their allegiance to him, despite everything he'd done for them, like burdening them with high taxes and imprisoning them without trial.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because it was pretty good to be the king at this point in time. Uh, so King John was the third of the Angevin kings and all of them ruled very much with this principle of vis et voluntas, which is force and will. I'm
2: big dog. That's what that yeah, means. Yeah, I'm big dog. That's, what, <laughs> <laughs> that's a
0: lucid that's translation. <laughs> but basically that had really upset enough barons simultaneously that alongside a bunch of their own individuals. Grievances, the sort of general alliance was this common cause that they basically wanted to stop King John from taking their money and their land.
1: Yeah, at this point the relationship between John and the Barons had become it kind of reminded me of you know those American cults when you watch those US TV shows. You know, it got a little bit out of control. He was trying to marry people off to other people. He was trying to take all of their money, imposing lots of strange, kind of changing rules on them, most of which were just attempts to extort more and more money out of them. And one of the main ways he did this was through this practice called scotage, which technically was supposed to be a way that if you had these sort of feudal obligations of performing military service to the Lord, and obviously the king being the ultimate lord you could buy your way out but in practice it had basically just become a levy on landholders to fund wars and john just kept doing it pretty much every single year of his reign really you were only supposed to do it in a time of emergency to fight a specific war he was just doing it every year as an additional way to raise money and the reason that he had to do this in the first place was that when he had come to the throne he was obviously the, is known to us as the king of England but was also the king of pretty much most of what's now France like the whole sort of west side of France most of Normandy as well and in the first few years of his reign he had managed to lose a huge chunk of the French part of the kingdom to the second King of France very careless <laughs> And then he spent, you know, it was a gambler's fallacy. He spent the next 10 years trying to get it back, which just meant spending more and more money. It wasn't working, so there was less and less enthusiasm to participate in these incredibly expensive and bloody wars against France. So there was a real John fatigue at this point.
2: But there was also Mm -hmm. the Holy Wars, the Crusades, that he was funding, which, you know, not just he, but his predecessor, his brother uh, Richard the Lionheart but also their father Henry II had instigated so really he's just carrying on in the family tradition and all of these baron guys were quite happy with that stuff when it was being done in the name of religion they just didn't want to have any extra taxes to pay for it I mean that's basically it isn't it you know faced with a massive government debt he decided basically to tax the rich which I think you'll find these days he's seen as progressive <laughs> politics you yeah. know they were just upset about it.
1: Yeah I mean the other thing was is that John just could not read a room you know at this point there was no <laughs> there was no modern parliament there was no there weren't really any checks and balances on the power of the king and the whole system and you know the harmony of the state relied on the king who technically had no limitations on his power listening to and gracefully accepting, you know, guidance from his advisors, from the barons, from the court. And John just wasn't particularly interested in that. He was known for being extremely heavy handed. And he offended not only the English nobles, but also the French nobles in the territories he still controlled in France with his really arbitrary and very taxing demands. He didn't give much credit to the dignity of the office of aristocrat. You know, if you couldn't pay this sudden tax he just announced on you, he had absolutely no hesitation about taking off your staff, carrying having it carried out of your house in a load of carts, having you locked in prison. He just did not really respect the barons at all and in return they obviously had lost patience with John by this point. And the turning point came in the summer of 1214. He lost the Battle of Bovine in Flanders at which point he was forced to hand over what remained of the Angevin Empire, the parts of France that England controlled. So at this point he, he basically lost everything in his French territories and the barons saw this was a really good moment to decide they were going to cut their own ties with him.
0: Yeah, so in January 1215 King John held a council in London to discuss the reforms and sponsored these talks uh, in Oxford between his agents and the rebel barons, which is thoroughly decent of him as kind of the God's representative on earth, I would say. Um, And then both sides actually sought the help of Pope Innocent III during these negotiations. Uh, And the barons initially presented a document called the Unknown Charter of Liberties, because we should note at this point, we're obviously building towards Magna Carta, but there had been a bunch of charters that preceded this. Uh, historical moment and this particular one that was presented to uh, King John eventually drew heavily on King Henry I's Charter of Liberties. Basically King John had a look at it and he uh, was like I'm just going to try and have a think about what you have proposed. In the background he was seeking out uh, moral support from the Pope and that's actually why he was delaying his response. Um, yeah because by and the way also, getting a
2: response back from the Pope took like two months. You know that's the thing to be- Bear in mind, you can't just pick up the phone, obviously, in 1215. Yeah, you need to get your fastest horse rider. And so, yeah, so he was also simultaneously
0: recruiting mercenaries from France. So he had a plan B. (laughs) Well,
1: you could see why the rebel barons might think that the Pope would be a great ally to have, because he'd actually excommunicated John in 1209 after a series of disagreements. But he did manage to win the Pope round sufficiently, that when John then offered to put the whole affair before the Pope and have him be the ultimate arbiter, the barons were not very attracted to this prospect. So instead, both sides settled on Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he sort of took their demands and turned them into a document that he called the Articles of the Barons, because it wouldn't start being called Magna Carta until a few years later.
2: Yeah, I feel like if the Articles of the Barons was one of the founding principles of the United States (laughs) Declaration of Independence, it would not have the same ring to it as a great charter in Latin. It's less we the people. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) They needed some uh, military might, obviously, behind their threats. So you end up with Robert Fitzwalter leading the rebel barons. He called himself Marshal of the Army of God and Holy Church, which is, I mean, if you're going to self-appoint, go grand, I think. Go big or go home. Um, (laughs) And they, I mean, to prove they meant business, they captured London. You know, they they started in Northampton, but they were like, well, this is not sufficient to really grab the king's attention. Let's do London. And that's really what forced King John to to meet them in Runnymede. And that's where uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, gets involved. And so
0: he presents Magna Carta to King John, and under duress, John does
2: agree to sign it. Well, he doesn't sign, he seals. Important distinction.
1: At the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether it was his or not, because neither side obeyed what was I know, they completely ignored it. That's him. true. He, completely. he may as well have just, you know, signed it with a kiss. Because within a few months, both sides have completely abandoned the Magna Carta. It's funny, you know, we think of it as being this foundational document, but at the time, it had literally no impact.
2: OK, so why do we still know the the name Magna Carta? The reason is because it's the first document in European history anyway to put into writing the principle that the king Mm. and his government is not above the law. Everything else, like all the other 63 different clauses setting out rules concerning land ownership and taxes and people's legal rights, are very specific to that particular era. But that basic principle that the king is not above the law uh, and that people should be tried fairly, quote, no man shall be arrested or imprisoned except by the judgment of their equals... That obviously is what's still resonant with us now. And we still have versions of those laws on our statute books now.
1: Yeah, there are a few clauses of the Magna Carta that get quoted and get referred to over and over again. But most of them are about, you know, they are very specific grievances. Mm. One of them forbids any member of the Date family from serving as a royal officer. It's obviously somebody's grudge. <laughs> I wish Another that one, had lasted. <laughs> stupid d'Ate's. Yeah. Another one about ordering the removal of fish weirs from rivers. That was to do with impeding river traffic. You know, probably very significant to the person who inserted it in there at the time. And also some of them not very inspiring when it comes to liberty one Mm. of the clauses is that no one should be arrested or imprisoned on the appeal of a woman for the death of any person except her husband
2: (laughs) wow that's quite interesting because for women generally it was quite progressive for the time and we're talking about (laughs) 1215 but um, it stipulated that widows were to enter their dows and inheritance without charge and difficulty Um, and also protected widows from compulsory remarriage. So I suppose good for women that had already married to a dead man. Um, (laughs) Maybe not so much for those who weren't married. Um, And this whole business about free men, it was worth just lingering on that as well. You know, all the the stuff that's then sort of lifted and talked about as if it means freedom for all men, i.e. all mankind, i.e. men and women, it doesn't Mm. mean that. Free men means aristocratic landowning men. (laughs) Wait a second. The barons were in it for themselves,
0: you're saying? How unexpected. (laughs) And so another week of retrospecting ends. But next
2: week begins a day early at Club Retrospectors. Join us now to get an exclusive episode every Sunday. Patreon.com slash retrospectors.
0: Part of the ACAST Creator Network.